We're going to be in Psalm 67 together this morning. And uh, one of the songs we sang this morning, was, the words were almost extracted right from this psalm. What I'd like to do is I'd like to just uh, read it together. And it's my tradition that uh, when we finish the reading of Scripture, I say, this is the word of the Lord. And then as a congregation, you can say, thanks be to God. So I'm going to speak, but I am not the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, right? So I'm going to read, and then when I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond, thanks be to God. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that all your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do give thanks for your word. We cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so today, as we open this psalm, we ask that you would teach us from your word, that you would stir our hearts, enliven our hearts, awaken our affections. We ask that you would drive us this morning to what Paul calls the obedience of faith. Help us to trust in your word such that it changes our lives. We obey you. We ask for this by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This psalm right here was a powerful piece of scripture in my life. It was 2011. I was pastoring in Wichita Falls, Texas. Has anyone here ever been to Wichita Falls, Texas? One. (laughs) One sad soul. (laughs) It's a, it's a flat barrenness uh, stretch of Texas. Um, it is, uh, I, I mean, the wind blows incessantly. It's almost as if, it's almost as if someone turns on a hairdryer and blows it in your face 24-7. The last year I was there, we had more than 100 days over 100 degrees. It, 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 it was rough. Um, deadness, dryness, drought, nothingness. And, but, but the Lord brought us there, and we had actually an amazing church family in spite of what Wichita Falls was like. It was just a, a beautiful church family. I was there for almost eight years. I was pastoring this church, and my burden in 2011 was that we had all of these uh, missionary letters where missionaries would write us back. They were missionaries that we supported. But I felt like as I looked out at the congregation, they didn't really know who the missionaries were, 
And I didn't know if they had like a personal burden for those missionaries. Like, in other words, I wondered if I could take one of those missionary letters and say, hey, could you tell me about, and then list the missionary's name, and if they'd be able to say anything. Like, I wondered, were they really praying for missionaries? Did they have a burden for missions? And I felt like that was my fault. I I didn't feel like I had led the church well to think beyond the neighborhood to the nations of the world. And so in 2011, I clearly remember I was just praying, asking God what he wanted me to preach on. And so we started a series for the whole month of January on missions. And I had all of these great ideas for the church family. Like, you know, all of you, I hope all of you will think more about missions. I I hope all of you will pray more for missions. I hope all of you will give more. I hope all of you will, you know, it was like all of these great, and they were noble and they were good and I was praying for them and I started to preach. One thing you need to know about preaching is that preaching is not just a proclamation that goes this way. Do you realize that every time one of your pastors preaches, it's been preaching to them this way for a lot longer? I mean, so every week as I got up there to preach, I had actually been preached to by the word all week long. And this was happening all through the beginning of of 2011. So here I am preaching to the congregation about missions, but I'm just telling you, the word was like hitting me. I had all these intentions for the people, but God had intentions for me. And this was one of the passages right here. This was one of the passages where I had all these great things like, oh man, I hope people really, really understand that God wants to be worshiped among the nations. But by the end of that month, I'm going to tell you what, I was convinced by God's spirit that I was supposed to be part of the story, that he was going to move me from Wichita Falls where there are still needy places in our country. He was going to move me from a place in Wichita Falls where there were four gospel preaching churches within four blocks of where I was pastoring. Four good gospel preaching churches within four blocks. He convinced me that he was going to move me to a place that didn't have so much gospel light. So I started to pray. I started to think about missions. I started calling mission agencies because I was convinced he was going to do something in my life. So I called mission agencies. I had a friend who was one of the regional directors for Voice of the Martyrs. Has anyone here ever heard of Voice of the Martyrs? I thought, well, maybe God wants me to go to like a refugee camp somewhere around the world. Maybe he wants me to go to another country. I started praying. It changed how I prayed. It changed how I gave. It changed what I read. I started reading missionary biographies. This is months of me just praying with God, like, God, what do you want me to do? Where are you moving me? Because I really sensed he was moving me. I just didn't know where. This was 2011. In 2011, we ended up coming to Salt Lake City for a survey trip. And that survey trip led to the resignation at Wichita Falls, led to a team coming here, led to the planting of Gospel Grace Church. It was this domino effect. But I really, when I trace it backwards, it's connected to passages just like this one. Passages where God just burdened my heart, and I hope he does that this morning in your heart, where he just burdens our heart that his name would be known, not just in our neighborhood, but around the globe, in the nations of the world. I remember during that preaching series in 2011, I, and I never intended this to be fulfilled in my own life. I'm just going to be honest. I was a faithless man. I didn't see it 
applying to me, but I remember saying something like this. If God wants me to go somewhere and take the gospel to a foreign land, I'll go. Almost as if to say, will you go? Little did I know I was going to go, you know, (laughs) like I'm going to go. And it was something how God just used his word in my life. And in this passage, I want you to see, there's something beautiful about this passage. The first thing I want you to see in this is that this passage is actually all about God. There's a structure in this psalm. It's called a chiasm. And it's a way that sometimes um, psalms are arranged in this way to show us where the focal point is. What that means is they have this parallelism that works from the outside in. And it brings us to this middle that's the most important point, and that's what you see in the psalm. Because if you were listening carefully and reading along carefully when I read it, you realized that it's almost as if the psalmist stuttered. Stuttered? Well, look at verse 3, and then look at verse 5. He says the same thing two times. Do you see it? Verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Do you see how this is all about God? Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. And he says it again. Like, in case you didn't catch it the first time, here it is again. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The centerpiece, the focal point of this psalm is right there in the middle. And it's this idea that God wants to be worshiped by all peoples. God wants to be worshiped by everyone. I think what's important here is that we catch how the psalmist is building this. It's not just that God wants to be worshiped by some He wants to be worshipped by all. In Hebrew poetry, it's interesting, they'll give like a line and then they'll expound on it. So do you see it in verse three? Look at the first line in verse three. Let the peoples praise you, O God. We could walk away from that line and think, well, look, we've gathered here today. We've sung some really great songs. We've already praised God. Awesome, (laughs) we're done. Go in peace, be warm and filled, and beat everybody else to the restaurants today. You know, like, we could do that. Like, there it is. Let the, let the peoples praise you. We did. But notice how he expands the scope in the next line. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Then he goes, let all the peoples praise you. I think what he's doing here is he's showing us that God doesn't want to just be worshipped by some. God desires to be worshipped by all. And it's almost as if the psalmist is showing us that there is a connection between worship and witness. I mean, a famous author put it this way. He said this, missions exists because, does anyone know the rest of this, this quote? Missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, why do we have to go on mission? Why do we have to live on mission? Because as you look around you, you find that there are people who do not yet worship the true and living God. And God is not satisfied with that. I mean, his heart is that all the people would worship him. There's a connection between worship and witness. And it's almost like this. If you would think about it in your own life, the higher your view of God, the deeper your passion that others would come to know and fear him. In other words, think about your own life when, when you had a high vision of God, when, when you knew that he was high and lifted up, 
when you knew that he was holy and should be worshiped, and then you look around, your heart grieves. I mean, Matt put it well. He, he cited from Acts, the book of Acts, where Paul is in Athens. He's walking through the streets. He sees all of these, these altars to different pagan deities. And his heart, this is what it says in that chapter, his heart groaned in him. His heart groaned because he knew who the true and living God was, and yet he looked around and he sees people who don't know him yet who don't understand who he is. And Paul's heart groaned. He had a high view of God. And so inside, he had this groaning that others would know, that others would worship the true and living God. A holy zeal that people would come to worship the true God. I don't know if you ever feel this way, but there are certain seasons here in the valley that my heart really groans it aches. I, I long for a day when false teachers will be quieted. I yearn for a time when temples will be closed. I await when idols will be cast down. Like, as for I long for, my heart groans for that. And specifically at these particular seasons of the year, when I look at people, I live right downtown. I'm, I'm, I'm actually 12 blocks south and five blocks east, and I can get on one of those electric scooters and be there in a second and have my heart ache for the people that are crowded there, longing that they would know, oh, that the nations, the peoples of the earth, all of them, not just some of them, all of them, would praise you, oh God. You know, the danger of our lives, here's, here's the real danger. The real danger of our lives is that we go to bed late on a Saturday, Netflixing ourselves to death. We go to bed late on a Saturday. We wake up tired on a Sunday. Have you ever done that? Okay, don't admit it, but imagine someone wakes up tired on a Sunday (laughs) and you drag yourself to church and you didn't have enough time to get your granola bar and things are rough and it's not the flavor of coffee you like and... uh, and you finally make it into your seat and the singing's going on and we're really thankful and it's, and by the end, you feel really like, whew, I made it to worship today. I mean, you feel really satisfied and happy and thankful and you almost feel congratulatory, like, oh, good job, Lucas, you made it. (laughs) Another Sunday in the books. The danger is that we would come to that conclusion. The danger is that somehow we would become so self-focused that we would be satisfied when we merely manage to worship. That we would be congratulatory that we made it. They hear on 2700 West in Riverton, some people have gathered for worship. That we would come to a state of slumber and, and contentment until every one of these chairs are filled you should have a holy discontentment. Until that wall is busted out, you should have a holy discontentment. Until Riverton is reached, you should have a holy discontentment. It is not enough. I mean, I think you need to catch this from the psalmist. It is not enough that the peoples praise you. 
because he says, let all the peoples praise you. God wants to be worshiped by all people. Notice how he describes this worship. I mean, just to be clear about what he's talking about, he talks about it in terms of praise and enjoyment. God wants to be praised by all people and enjoyed by all people. And that might just start with us today. Like, maybe you've come and you think worship is I sing with some songs. And that can be an expression of worship. But God wants to be praised and enjoyed. And you see that in verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. He repeats the same thing in verse 5. So there you have four different times the word praise is there. And so I think he's telling us this. God wants to be praised by all people. But what hurts our heart is as we look around, he's more often cursed than praised. I don't know where you work. Two days a week, I work up at Hill Air Force Base. I drive up there, I do counseling, and just see stacked counseling sessions on Hill Air Force Base. That's what I do two days a week. And I just want to tell you, if you've ever been around a military environment, you, you don't have to be a sailor to speak like one. <laughs> he's more often cursed than praised in the work environment I go to. He's more often blamed than thanked. He's more often ignored than hallowed. I mean, have you ever thought about Jesus' prayer? Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this way. He says, pray after this manner. Do you remember this? Our Father, who art in heaven, what does he say next? Hallowed be your name. Oh, that your name would be hallowed, praised, exalted, honored among not just some people, but all people. The word for praise here is the word that was associated in the Old Testament with these Jews that would come and give a thank offering to God. And you can almost imagine lifted hands, thanks, praise to the true and living God. The Jews are doing this. And he says, oh, that all the peoples and all the nations would be doing this with you. Oh, that I would be praised by all the people. Oh, that I would be enjoyed. Sometimes I think worship for people can be a duty instead of a delight. Notice verse number four. When people come to praise the true and living God, when they know him and they fear him, then nations can actually be glad and they can actually sing for joy. What is the chief and highest end of men? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. I just want to ask you, in all of your worship, and all of your praise, do you enjoy God? Let me just pause for a second. I can imagine some things that maybe you've enjoyed. I was thinking this year, okay, what are some things I've enjoyed this year? I got some free tickets to Lagoon. How many of you have ever been to Lagoon? Okay, some of you have been to Lagoon. There's this thing called the Cannibal. <laughs> I was a little scared. I hadn't been to an amusement park since I was 12 years old. I am now in my 40s. Didn't know if the same thing was going to work for me. <laughs> My kids wanted me to get on that. A little terrified. You know, that's the one that actually drops you this way, inverts you, and then drops you. So, you know, it's, it's a little crazy. Yeah, some of you are like, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. But I had free tickets, you know, so we go to Lagoon, and let me just tell you, by the end, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Now, pause for a second. Can you think of something you've enjoyed recently? And is the answer to that worship? Do you enjoy God? Have you, have you had time with him where you've just opened the word in early morning before you go to work and you just enjoy God? Have you been on a treadmill and you're listening to some wor worship music and you're just enjoying God? 
have you been with a friend for a Bible study and you just enjoy God together? Have you been in a Sunday service and your heart is warmed with God's people and you enjoy him? If you've experienced that, then I want you to know this. God wants other people to experience it too. And not just some, all. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you, that they would be glad that they would be able to enjoy. I don't know about you, but when I look around, I see so many hurting people. When I look around, I see so many hopeless people, empty, broken, depressed people. And two days a week, that's who I sit with. Broken, hurting, depressed people. And do you know what they need? They need the true and living God who brings joy to hearts. Think about gospel hope, church. Hope for Riverton. Hope in the worship of the true and living God. Okay, God wants to be worshiped by all people. I think that's what you can see in the center of the psalm. But the psalm goes on and expounds on that. Not not just does he want to be worshiped by all people, but the psalmist is going to make it clear that that cannot happen unless the nations come to know and fear him. Like God wants to be worshiped by everyone, but it'll never happen unless people come to know and fear the true and living God. How will they ever worship someone who they don't know? How will they ever stand in awe of him if they've never heard of him? And so in verse two, take a look at verse two. He says that your way may be known. You can kind of circle the word known. He has to be known on the earth. Take a look at verse number four. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Somehow they have to come to know this one. Notice again in uh, verse number seven. The last line of the psalm, let all the ends of the earth fear him. God wants to be worshiped by all people, but that can't happen unless the nations come to know and fear him. What is it? Let me just pause for a second. What is it that people need to know about God? Because I imagine you could ask many of your neighbors, you say, hey, do you know God? Yeah, I know God. And then you move on with the conversation. (laughs) But do they really know God? What do they need to know about God? It is not enough that someone just claims to say, I know God. I was sitting on an um, airplane on Christmas Day, and I was next to an Orthodox Jewish man and his family. His adult daughter sat near me. This Orthodox Jewish man began to talk to me, had the beards, the the sideburns all down. He had a hat, the black hat. He began to talk to me on this airplane. I asked him some questions. I had been reading in Isaiah, so I just started to ask him some questions about Isaiah. Just about a book that is part of his canon, you know, just asking some questions about it because I had been reading it. And I remember I'm asking this, this man these questions and his adult daughter pipes up and she was mad. She goes, I don't know, and I don't know how she came to this conclusion, but she says, I don't know why you evangelicals think that everyone has to be saved. <laughs> I was just asking questions about Isaiah, you know. Just, but she came to that conclusion and was frustrated by it. She said, we have our religion and we know God. I pause for a second. What do you think about that? Or maybe you could talk to one of your neighbors and one of your neighbors say, listen, we have our religion and we know God. Do you end the conversation there? The psalmist was surrounded by people who would have claimed to know some God. 
but that's not enough. They need to know the true and living God and they need to know certain things about him. They need to know his actions. You see that in verse number two. In verse number two, that your way, your actions, your way, your undertakings, that your way might be known. People need to know the works of the true and living God. I mean, isn't that what Israel was supposed to do? Here's Israel. I want you to think about this. If you lived hundreds of years before Jesus, just pause for a second and think about this. If you lived hundreds of years before Jesus and you wanted to worship the true and living God, what would you be? Or what would you become? What do you think? You'd become a Jew. You'd convert to Judaism. Even if you're a Gentile, you would become a proselyte, a convert. And why is that? Because prior to Jesus, what people had the law and the prophets? What people group had these large clay pots with scrolls in them from, let's say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or the Torah? I mean, who had those? The Jews did. If you wanted to serve the true and living God, then you would, you would have converted to Judaism. Why? Because the Jews had the scriptures. They had the word and the works of God recorded on those scrolls. And the Jews were supposed to be people who made God's word, his ways, his works known among the nations. The Jews were supposed to be like a nation of priests. They were supposed to bring other nations to God and God to the other nations. That's what the Jews were supposed to be. Moses writes about it in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19.6, Moses said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests a holy nation. Israel was supposed to function in such a way that they made the ways and the works and the words of God known to all these other nations. At one point, Isaiah the prophet says this to the nation of Israel. He says, not only are you supposed to be like this nation of priests, he says, you're supposed to be like a light or a beacon to the other nations. How are the nations gonna know the words and works of God? You're supposed to tell them, Israel, You're supposed to be a light. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42. I will give you as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you as a light for the nations so that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. God wants people to know his ways. And so he gave his word and he gives these people so they would be light where they go. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus came, he talks to his disciples and he says, You're the salt of the earth, and you're the what? What's the next one? The light. It wasn't just Israel supposed to be a light. You're supposed to be a light. God wants to be worshiped by all people. That won't happen unless they come to know and fear him. How will they ever come to know and fear him if you're not being light? So God's put you there. You're gonna help people come to know the Lord. You're gonna tell of his actions. You're gonna let people know about his sovereignty. In verse number four, The nations are going to be glad. The nations are going to sing for joy. And here's why. Because the judge of all the people, the one who does things equitably, the one who guides the nations of the earth, he is the true and living God. Is there anyone in your life that you think is oppressed? Is there anyone in your life that you think longs for justice? Is there anyone in your life that you think might be lost in life? 
then who do they need to know? They need to know the one who is the judge of the people with equity. They need the guide of all the nations. If they're lost, they need a guide. If they're oppressed, they need justice. If they're broken, they need someone who's sovereign who can fix what's broken. They need to know the true and living God. They need to know his works of salvation. Look at verse number two. That your way may be known on earth, that your saving power might be known among all the nations. To the broken and the lost, the hopeless and the tired, to the people who are ready to give up, oh, that they would know the salvation of the Lord. God wants them to know him. He wants them, look at verse number seven, the last line of the psalm, that all the ends of the earth would fear him. So let's see if we can put it together so far. God wants to be worshiped, not just by some, by all the peoples. God wants to be worshiped by all people. That will never happen unless they come to know and fear him. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named John Eliot. Anybody know that name? 17th century? No, no, okay. He's, he's old, he's dead, he's done. John Eliot, an Englishman born in 1604. But what's interesting about him is he, he made a voyage to the Americas 11 years after the Mayflower. Mayflower went 11 years later. Here comes John Eliot. He crosses the Atlantic. He comes to the colonies and lives there until 1690 when he dies. Now, what's fascinating about his life is that he could not shake the implications of Scripture that said, all nations will one day bow before Christ. You know, like in Philippians 2, every knee's gonna bow. I mean, he just thought, oh, that means all the nations. That was his thought. And he gets to the colonies in in the early 1600s and he looks around and he sees American Indians. Does it mean them too? Does it mean that they will bow before Christ one day too? And so John Eliot, slightly past 40 years old, began to do missionary work among the American Indians in Massachusetts. I don't know about you, but I mean, to start learning a language once you're past 40, I have trouble remembering my kids' names sometimes. Like, hey, you, whichever, number four, you, you. <laughs> Let alone learn a whole new language. Here he is, he's past 40, but he is compelled by the scriptures that all people need to worship the true and living God. And he looks around and he sees these people who don't yet know about Christ. And so he begins to learn the Indian dialect. Actually, it's called Algonquin is the name of the dialect there in Massachusetts. He begins to learn this language. It had no alphabet, so he created an alphabet. No one knew the grammar or syntax, but he figured it out. He learned the vocabulary, wrote an alphabet, learned the language, and then he translated the Bible into Algonquin. Do you know this? The first Bibles printed on, on our soil, the first Bibles printed were in Algonquin. You think like English. No, they weren't in English. The first Bibles printed were in Algonquin, and it was the work of John Eliot because he was so burdened in his heart that all the people would come to know and fear and worship the true and living God. What's God's means? I mean, here we are, okay, that's awesome. I don't know if I can learn a language at 40, and I don't know if I'm supposed to translate the Bible. Okay, maybe that's not you. 
what is God's means then of getting his name out so that people will know and fear him? Remember, God longs to be worshiped by all the people. It won't happen unless they come to know and fear him. So, so look. So God is determined. Here's the last part of the psalm. God has determined to bless us so that we could channel his grace to the ends of the earth. God has determined to bless us so that we can channel his grace to the ends of the earth. Look at verse number one. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, we are really great at praying that part. Like, those are our favorite prosperity, blessing, favor prayers. I wonder how many of you prayed even today, maybe over breakfast. Oh, dear God, I pray that you bless us and give us a good day at church today and nourish these Cheerios to my body and bless the hands that prepared it. And, you know, like, I don't know, whatever you prayed, but we're really good at praying for blessing. Like, God, would you bless us, right? But notice the psalmist doesn't end there. Can you see this? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. What's the next word? It's that. We could put, so that. <laughs> so that your ways might be known on earth. So that your saving power might be known among all the nations. You look at verse six. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And then instead of the word let, the Hebrew is better translated so that. So that all the ends of the earth might fear him. I mean, when you read that, what you need to know is that God's blessings are bountiful. I mean, you see that grace, favor, blessing. Here the psalmist is using these words from the Aaronic blessing of Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. Oh God, would you bless us? Would you be gracious to us? Would you make your face shine upon us? That comes from Aaron's blessing in the book of Numbers. He's very, very bountiful in his blessings. Verse six, the earth has yielded increase. I mean, think about increase. Increase is when your harvest outweighs the seed. You have increase. It means you have beyond what you need. It means even though maybe you prayed this morning and give us this day our daily what? Bread. And even though maybe you prayed that, you know that in the freezer, you've got more than daily bread. And in your cupboards, you've got all the stuff. And in the pantry, it's loaded. And you, do you realize like the harvest is plentiful in your home? Everyone in here, I can just say this, you're an American, which means you're richly blessed. And if you say, Lucas, I don't know, you don't know about the car I drive. And, you know, I only have a swamp cooler and not central air. And, okay, friend, can we just travel somewhere around the world, please, together? And I will show you a cardboard box. Or I will just show you a dirt hut. You are blessed. The harvest has come in for you, my friend. You have been richly given increase. So here the psalm says, so God, would you bless us? Would you give us increase? Would you make the harvest abound? And I just want to tell you, for everyone that's in this room this morning, it has already for us. It's already done that. But he doesn't stop there. Yes, God's blessings are bountiful. But you need to realize that God's blessings are purposeful. If you don't catch this from Scripture, you're missing one of the major themes in Scripture. 
For instance, what would it have been like if all of the Israelites who left Egypt with all of this gold, silver, and jewelry and stuff from the Egyptians, you remember that? God caused the Israelites to spoil the Egyptians, and they come out with all this gold and stuff. Do you remember that? A bunch of slaves, a million of them traveling with all this, this Egyptian gold and silver and precious stuff. Why did God give them that? so that they could be really rich slaves traveling through the world. No, that's not why he gave it to them. Why did he give it to them? So that they could give it back in the building of what? A tabernacle. Do you ever wonder, like, where did the stuff in the tabernacle come from? A bunch of million slaves. It came from Egypt. God spoiled the Egyptians. He blessed his people so that they could actually build this tabernacle so it would be a place of worship and blessing for everyone. Do you see that? That's how God's grace works. God's grace works in such a way that he pours it out, not so that you can be a cul-de-sac, but so that you can be a freeway. He pours out his grace not so that you can be a receptacle, but so that you can be a channel. Do you see that? God, would you bless us? Would you be favorable to us? Would you shine your face upon us? Would you cause the harvest to come in, God? so that the nations might come to know and fear you, so that you might be worshiped. And I want to challenge you this morning to think about the ways that you've been blessed. I want to challenge you this morning to think about the increase that enriches your life. And then I want to ask you, what's the purpose of it? Is it so you can kick your feet up? Is it so that you can live in retirement the rest of your life? Is it so that you can build a bigger house or have a nicer car or have a longer vacation? or have a? Is that why God has enriched you? I'm just gonna tell you, God has enriched you. He has blessed you. He has favored you and caused the harvest to come in in your life so that, so that what? So that his ways might be known on the earth, his saving power among all the nations. I want you to know this. God is not, he's not trying to use us. I mean, don't get this idea that he's giving you some gifts that he can use you as some transport company, some laundering industry. No. He's not trying to use you. He actually knows that your joy is increased when grace expands to more and more people. Imagine this. You've got a, you've got a kid. A kid asks for a piece of bubble gum from his mom. And instead of giving him a piece of bubble gum, you know what the mom does? She grabs the whole bag of PAL bubblegum. You know those little pieces of bubblegum? I ate like 23 of them once just to see if they stay in your stomach for seven years. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> you ask for one piece of bubblegum, your mom takes down the whole bag of bubblegum and she gives you the whole bag and says, now why don't you give some to your friends too? Now do you see what just happened? That child is enriched, but he's enriched so that he can give and his joy is increased as grace spreads to more. Do you, know why, you wanna know why God blesses you so that you can share? Because he knows that you're gonna be more satisfied when you distribute his grace to more people. He knows that and that's why he gives. I think all the way back to the earliest stories of the Jewish nation, you see that this was God's plan. Like all the way back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's what God said to Abraham. Do you remember that? In all the families of the earth, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Do you remember that? All the way back from the beginning. I'm going to bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, so that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what's fascinating is the Jewish people multiply. They're blessed, they're blessed, they're blessed. They're given a land, they're given all this stuff. They're given this psalm. Do you know what they did with this psalm? Anybody know the history of this psalm? There are 49 Hebrew words in this psalm. That's an interesting number. Seven times seven. Seven times seven is 49. Okay, so there's 49 Hebrew words. Seven times seven. What if we design these Hebrew words into the shape of a menorah? You remember the seven candlesticks? That's precisely what they did. They thought, listen, long before Microsoft came out with it, the Jews had word art, all right? They had word art. They used these 49 words. They arranged them in a menorah, a seven-candlesticked menorah, and they decorated their synagogue walls with it. You could go into ancient synagogues and you would find this psalm right there, kind of artistically laid on the wall. And what they would do is, because it had 49 words, they aligned it with the 49 nights between Passover and what? Pentecost. Between those two feasts, Jews would go to the synagogue and they would recite that psalm. Isn't that fascinating? Cool art. Kind of a neat number. It's a menorah. It fits into our calendar between these two feasts. I mean, that's kind of cool. For 49 nights, they recited the psalm that they refused to obey. Do you know what I mean by that? I meant God had blessed his people. He had given them his word, not so that it could be hoarded and kept for themselves, but so that it could be shared to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the what? To the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth, just like the psalm says, but it wasn't doing that. They're quoting it, they're quoting it. Can you imagine that Passover when Jesus dies? That Passover when the Christ was slaughtered. And that night they go into their synagogues, you know, and they recite this one. And the next night they recite it. And the next night they recite it. Oh, to the nations, to the nations, to the nations. But they're not doing it. I tell you, you can decide this morning not to participate in God's plan. You can decide that this morning. You could just keep going about your life, doing whatever it is that you do, minding your own business, saving your own money, accumulating your own wealth, living for yourself. Go ahead. I mean, don't go ahead, but. Do you know, do you know what? God's gonna accomplish his purpose without you then. 49 nights, those Jews recited that psalm and refused to obey it. The Christ is slaughtered at Passover, and for 49 nights they recite it until Pentecost. And although they were not part of it, God still accomplished his plan. Because at Pentecost, those apostles get up and they preach in what? In all these different languages such that 3,000 people from the ends of the earth come to know and fear the true and living God. And the church is birthed in Acts 2. Isn't that what Jesus said would happen? You're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. I just wonder. I just wonder if you're going to be part of Psalm 67. In other words, the story of Psalm 67 isn't done, my friends. Just look around at Riverton. It's not done. 
What God longs to do is to pour out his gracious blessings on your life so that in turn you can channel his grace to the ends of the earth. Will you be part of Psalm 67? Let's pray. Oh God, you long to be worshiped not by some, but by all the peoples of the earth. But that can't happen unless people come to know and fear you. And so we acknowledge this morning that you have decidedly blessed us. You have caused your face to shine upon us. You have given us peace so that your ways might be known on the earth, so that your saving power might be spread among the nations. And so I pray for Gospel Hope Church that you would stir in the hearts of everyone here today that they would be part of Psalm 67. Oh God, bless us, make your face to shine upon us so that your name might be known. In Jesus' name, amen.